Well, good morning, everyone. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3, and we are going to be considering the first uh, 16 verses, verses 1 through 16 this morning. Thus says the word of the Lord, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven But he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Life. Father, this morning again we come to you totally dependent upon you and the work of the Holy Spirit to open your word to us, to illuminate it to our understanding, to our hearts, to our wills, that we would be changed, that we, Father, would be to your praise, that your purposes would be accomplished in this world through your people. Father, convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Father, help us to walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word, and I thank you for each one here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, by way of introduction, it is helpful to keep in mind that John's gospel is really summarized well in the 20th chapter of John, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verse 30, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is critical to keep in mind as we read the Gospel of John, 
John is setting forth evidence before us. Evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that evidence is set before you that you may believe. And believing that you may have life in his name. So let's keep that in mind as we go through the text this morning. Evidence, belief, life. This passage in John chapter 3 is perhaps the clearest explanation of the new birth given by the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the big question for us this morning is this. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? There is no more important question that I can put to you this morning than this one because it determines your eternal destiny. So now we we turn to this private encounter between Jesus and this man, Nicodemus. And by way of context for this chapter, back up just one page to chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, that is Jesus, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And it is, it is one, of, one of these men who saw the signs of Jesus who now comes to him in this private encounter at night to seek him out. But before we get to the new birth and what it is, who is this man Nicodemus? Well, in verse 1, we see there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a group within Israel of about 6,000 men, according to the Jewish historian Josephus at the time of Herod the Great. And these were the religious elites in Israel. They were the arch-conservatives, if you will. Um, They were the arch-conservatives of Orthodox Judaism. The word Pharisee literally means separate, separated ones. Uh, Not in the sense of isolationism, but in the sense of purity, moral purity. They had great zeal for religious purity. They knew the Mosaic law, and they strived to conform to it. They would have been what we call the Bible answer men in their day. Uh, They were the teachers of Israel. In terms of socioeconomic status, most were made up of middle-class businessmen, Uh, But this particular man, Nicodemus, at least tradition tells us, he was one of the three wealthiest men in Israel at this time. And so Nicodemus was at the pinnacle of success uh, and and wisdom. He was well-read in the scriptures. The trouble with the Pharisees, you see, was that their focus on purity was primarily external. They believed that to be saved, it was enough to have the right pedigree, meaning to be born a physical descendant of Abraham, a Jew, and to fulfill the letter of the law, to be in compliance externally with the law. To this, of course, they added their own traditions, rules that one must follow and observe in order to be righteous. And the trouble is they were teaching their own doctrines as the commandments of God. And we see that the Lord Jesus Christ indicts them severely for this on several occasions. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, he says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, 
and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And Jesus later says of their motives, all their works they do to be seen by men. So while they seemed very religious in their service to God, their primary motivation was the approval, the amen, if you will, of fellow men, not of God. The Pharisees were self-righteous, and they were hypocritical. This man, Nicodemus, in terms of his name, he has a Greek name. He's a Jew, but he has a Greek name, Nicodemus. Nikos, you probably have heard this name. It's a very common name in Greek. Nikos means victor. So his name, Nicodemus, is really a victor over the people. And he, I would say, lived up to his name because, as we see here, he was a ruler of the Jews, right? A man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this would have been a reference to the Sanhedrin, the ruling body in Israel, a body of 70 men. So within the larger nation, you had the 6,000, who were the Pharisees, approximately. Within that body, you had the 70, who were the ruling body. It would have been the the equivalent of the Supreme Court and the U.S. Senate uh, today. They were the decision makers in Israel, the ruling authority. What else do we know about Nicodemus? Well, down in verse 10, we're told... Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? The definite article, the, is used there. So he was the teacher in Israel. He was a teacher of teachers. He was at the top. He was known. He was highly regarded regarded and influential. Verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, he came to Jesus at night, and this Nicodemus is the only Pharisee in Scripture that we're told sought out Jesus. You'll remember there was one other Pharisee, but Jesus himself sought out that man, a man named Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, later known as Paul. So what prompted Nicodemus to come to this Galilean carpenter for a private encounter? Well, we're told that he came at night, And I don't know exactly why it was at night that he came. There's a lot that's been written on this phrase, that he came at night. Uh, It could have been circumstantial. It could have been the only time that he had available to come to meet with Jesus. But more likely, and what I believe personally, is that he wanted a secret meeting, a meeting unknown to his fellow Pharisees. He had seen Jesus' miracles, right, at the end of chapter 2, and he knew that Jesus was from God. He couldn't be ignored. We're told many believed in his name, referring to Jesus, when they saw the signs he did. So I I believe Nicodemus was a hypocrite, and that despite all his self-righteousness, inwardly he was empty. He was fearful about his future. And he wanted this private meeting to find out what he lacked, what he could do to be saved. Rabbi, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Rabbi, literally master, teacher, or great one. It's a term of respect. Uh, Nicodemus would have been called a rabbi. John the Baptist was called a rabbi by, by his disciples. And so this seems outwardly to be a good confession, does it not? Rabbi, but is it sufficient? You remember in Matthew chapter 16... We have Simon Peter's confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus was saying, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And some say, they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And then this, Simon Peter steps forward and he says, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, what for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon, you did not come to this understanding of who I truly am on your own. It had to be revealed to you from heaven above by my Father. That, my friends, is a sufficient confession of Jesus Christ. But this confession of Nicodemus, of rabbi only, is not. We know, we know that you are a teacher. We, Nicodemus was representing not just himself, but the nation of Israel. Israel took note of his signs. And, and after 400 years of silence, there had not been any revelation from the time Malachi finished his writing until this time, 400 years of silence, there was no no communication from God. And here suddenly this Galilean carpenter comes on the scene and there is a proliferation, an explosion of miracles, of signs. They couldn't help but take notice at that. And the people were wondering, is Jesus perhaps like Moses? Is he like Moses? He had performed many signs. We read in chapter 2, he turned water into wine at Cana. Uh, and at the end of chapter 2, that there were many signs that were seen. Now, we don't get all of them enumerated right there, but we do know that he did many miracles. He, He cured people of incurable disease and conditions. He cast out demons, did he not? And he raised the dead. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. There is something different about this teacher. And Nicodemus knew that Jesus' abilities far surpassed his own. He, the teacher of Israel, and yet he could not do the signs that Jesus did. No, in fact, no one can do these signs you do, Jesus, unless not that God is with him, but that he himself is God. That's where this confession of Nicodemus comes up short. So what was the question, or excuse me, what was Jesus' response to the many who believed, quote-unquote, believed in him when they saw the signs at the end of John chapter 2? Well, we read that in verse 24, Jesus did not commit himself to them. Literally, that word means believe. Jesus did not believe in their quote-unquote belief. He wasn't fooled by their belief. He knew it wasn't genuine. Why? Verse 25, And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus, my friends, can read the heart of man. His gaze penetrates through all of the superficiality, all of the veneer that we put up, our intellectuality, our sophistication, he cuts through it all, and he can read the heart of man like no one else. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but this may seem to be a strange response from Jesus Jesus answered and said to him as if Nicodemus had asked a question. But if you look back at verse 2, 
There is no question. Nicodemus makes a statement. We know that you are the teacher or a teacher come from God, for no one can, can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So what is Jesus doing in answering him this way? Well, I believe he is doing two things. The first is he's answering Nicodemus' hidden question, which is how can I be saved? What must I do to be saved and enter the kingdom of God? Because he could read Nicodemus' heart. But the second thing he does is he's saying, look, Nicodemus, you've seen the signs and the miracles. You, Israel, have seen the signs and the miracles with your physical eyes. The signs of the kingdom you can see with your physical eyes. But unless you're born again and given spiritual eyes, you cannot see the kingdom. In effect, he's saying, stop. Your confession, Nicodemus, is insufficient. You can't see because you haven't been born again. You're spiritually blind. Your whole understanding of yourself, of righteousness, of God's kingdom, is all wrong. Cuts him off at the pass, as it were, and he says, silence. Something miraculous, Nicodemus, must happen to you, to which you make no contribution if you are to see the kingdom of God. So this is our first principle this morning. If you're taking notes, principle number one, the new birth is something that happens to you. The new birth is something that happens to you. Let me ask you a question. What contribution did you make to your physical birth? I mean, really, can you decide who your parents are or, or where you're going to be born or when you're going to be born? We make no contribution to our physical birth. That is exactly the reason why Jesus chooses this metaphor, this picture of birth, precisely because we have no contribution to it. And this, of course, would have been a huge blow to a Pharisee, right? To one who was especially the teacher of Israel, who was so fastidious in his religion, dedicated to it, did doing, doing so much to earn his own righteousness, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly, literally, verily, verily, truly, truly, or in the Greek, amen, amen, I say to you. What is he doing here? Well, rabbis, when they would speak, would often quote other rabbis as an authoritative source. And the people upon hearing these things would, would give their amen at the end of a rabbi speaking. Jesus here puts his amen up at front, at the beginning. Why? Because he is the authority. He is the authority. He will later say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the very source of truth. And we read in the scriptures that the people knew that he spoke with authority. They were astonished, in fact. That's the word used. They marveled. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority and not like the scribes who were the experts in the law in the Old Testament. I think the other thing he's doing is he's calling attention to a very important truth. Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen. In other words, what follows is very important. Pay attention. It's his way of highlighting, circling, saying what follows is critical. And it is this, unless one is born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
That word for again is the Greek word anothen. You might have been thinking we've got a typo in our sermon title for today, born anothen, but it's intentional. Anothen is the Greek word for again, but it also literally means from above. So now let's read it with that as our vantage point. Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 1.23 says, having been born again. What does Peter say about being born again? Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So what is this new birth? Well, in a word, it is the incorruptible seed or the life of God implanted in the soul of a man. It comes down from above, from heaven, and is implanted in the soul of a man. The life of God implanted in the soul of a man. It's something that happens to you. It's something that God does for us. And how does it happen? That, my friends, is a mystery. We are told in 1 Peter 1.23, it happens through the word of God, through the word of God, but I don't pretend to to understand how it happens. It's as Isaiah says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. These are God's methods, friends. Unless one is born again, he cannot see, cannot, literally no power. You have no ability to see the kingdom of God. What is this kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? I like how Graham Goldsworthy puts it very succinctly. He says, kingdom is this, God's people in God's place under God's rule. It is God's rule and his reign, particularly in salvation. Think about it this way. It is the realm of salvation, the kingdom of God. It's a personal relationship. We're talking about communion with the living God through the Holy Spirit. Listen to how Paul puts it to the Romans in chapter 14, verse 17. He says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. You see, that's why Nicodemus can't see it. The the kingdom is spiritual, and he hasn't been born yet from above. He hasn't been given spiritual eyes to see spiritual truth and the kingdom. And spiritual understanding, friends, must be given always from heaven. Uh, You might remember in Mark chapter 4, after Jesus had given the parable of the sower, uh, his 12, the closest 12, come to him and some others that were immediately around him, And he says, to you, it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah 6 saying, so that seeing they may see and not perceive. And hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Spiritual understanding is a gift from heaven from the Lord himself. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Uh, Literally in the Greek, 
there's no question. He, he's saying he cannot into the womb of his mother a second time enter and be born. Now, Nicodemus, as a teacher, the teacher of Israel, would have been very familiar with riddles, logic. In fact, he would have been a master logician. And so he tries to follow our Lord's metaphor here of birth. But he comes up short. He, he, he doesn't understand. He's thinking only in earthly terms. And it's, it's quite a ridiculous thing that he says, is it not? Can a man, when he's old, return to his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, pay attention. Amen, amen. I say to you, not only can't you see the kingdom if you haven't been born from above, but you cannot enter the kingdom. You cannot be saved without these two elements, water and spirit. Water and spirit. But this would have been very familiar language for the teacher of Israel who knew the Old Testament scriptures and would have committed large portions of scripture to memory. There are several portions of scripture that speak to this idea of water and spirit, but there are two in particular I'd like to call attention to this morning. The first is Ezekiel chapter 36. Would you turn there in your Bibles? Ezekiel chapter 36. Starting in verse 25, the Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then, I, then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Notice how many times the Lord says, I will. This is a sovereign act of God. I will sprinkle you. I will cleanse you. Now turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, this is a psalm of David. And you'll remember, David had committed a heinous number of sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. He had committed adultery with another man's wife. And then he put that man's wife, Uriah, on the front lines of the battle and effectively murdered him. And David says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Wash me, cleanse me. And then in verse 7 again, purge me with hyssop that I shall, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So you see this imagery of water, washing, cleansing, and a new heart. This, friends, is the new covenant. This is an act of God. The Holy Spirit is intimately involved with this idea of the second birth. The Holy Spirit. Why? Because we must be washed and cleansed where no man can reach from within in our sin-stained souls. We're not talking about water baptism, a baptism where the, the flesh is clean. You see the utter folly, the foolishness of that. It has no power to save a water baptism, this cleansing that we need is from within. God himself must do it. And, as we saw in Ezekiel 36, 
I will give you a new heart. I will take the heart of stone. There is a heart surgery that is required that only the Lord can do. He must take out that heart of stone, that heart of sin, that only desires sin, and give us a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that feels after God, that can love God, that desires to obey God. You might remember how Paul puts it to Titus in the New Testament, in Titus 3, 5. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. How? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Water and spirit. This is the doctrine of regeneration. We must be washed from within by the Spirit of God. And so why all this talk of washing and cleansing? What does this presuppose? Well, that we are stained with sin in our souls. We are filthy. We are vile. As Isaiah says, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faints from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. That's a pretty gruesome image, isn't it? But you say, Jonathan, I'm not as bad as all that. I'm a morally upright person. I consider myself a pretty good person. I'm honest. I I do good deeds for others. Maybe I I, I tithe. I I go to church regularly. I, I serve others. My friend, you are comparing yourself with other men when you say that. Your standard is wrong. The standard is be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is how God sees us in our natural state as a result of our first birth. Vile, filthy, sin-stained, wretched. Even your best works of righteousness, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags in his sight. And you have a heart problem. As Jeremiah the prophet says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your compass, so to speak, that is supposed to point you north is broken. It's not reliable because of sin. And Jesus says himself, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. We are dead in trespasses and sins, loved ones. Remember the story of Lazarus? That is not just a story to show Jesus' power to raise the dead. It is a picture of each and every one of us in sin. We are dead and lifeless and stinking as a corpse dead four days. And the Lord of glory has to call us forth from the tomb and give us new life. That's the bad news. That's where we have to start whenever we share the gospel. The bad news first, we are in peril and we need to be saved. This is also known as the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be as a person. Not everybody is a a Hitler or a Stalin, but you're as bad off as you can be. Why? Because all your faculties, that is to say your mind, your emotions, your will, the entire man is corrupted because of sin, distorted because of sin. It's it's as if you took a drop of poison and you dropped it into a glass of water. What happens to that poison? Does it not spread and contaminate the entire cup of water? In other words, in your natural state, your first birth, you are not able to think clearly. Your feelings will mislead you. And your desires, as good as you think they may be, are anti-God. They're evil. What we need is a new heart and a new nature. Friends here today, 
What we need is not more information about how to live a better life, not more information, but a radical transformation, a root transformation from within. So our second principle today is the new birth is a radical transformation from within. Something that happens to us and it is a radical transformation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's it. That's it. So again, I ask you, are you born again? The question is not, are you in church? Are you living a moral life? Do you read your Bible and pray every day? Do you do many good things for God and for others? No, no, no. The question is, are you born again? Are you love? You cannot be saved apart from this. Now, on this question of the need to be washed, Nicodemus, he was concerned with purity. All the Pharisees were, but only in the externals. He was a proud man. He was proud of his pedigree, just as Paul was when he was a Pharisee. You'll remember Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3 about how he thought of himself, how he trusted in the flesh. His confidence was entirely in the flesh. In chapter 3 of Philippians, he says in verse 4, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But then listen to what he says now. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, excuse me, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, refuse, manure. Why? That I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That's it. So back to John chapter 3. Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do you remember what else Jesus says is a requirement for entering the kingdom of God? He says, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. All confidence in the flesh, all confidence in ourselves must go by the wayside. You must, in effect, start over. That's what it means to be born again. And you must trust in your heavenly Father and his revealed righteousness, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an offensive message for somebody who has learned, who is at the top of society, who thinks he has it all outwardly. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We're talking about two different domains here, Nicodemus, the domain of the flesh and the domain of the Spirit. The flesh in Scripture refers to fallen mankind. It refers to the total, what we would call the total depravity of man. The flesh can only produce more of the same kind. This is the the doctrine of original sin. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The reason we all sin, 
friends, is because we're sinners by nature. Your nature dictates what you do. A good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree can only bear bad fruit. Nicodemus, you must be born of an altogether different kind of the Spirit. And do not marvel, verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Again, Jesus shows that he is able to read Nicodemus' heart because he knows Nicodemus is marveling. He's going to say in verse 9, how can these things be? He's astonished. But this shouldn't be a surprise to you, Nicodemus. Is not life full of mysteries? And so should not the kingdom of God have mystery about it as well? I mean, think about it. Do we really understand how the human body works? We've learned a lot about how the human body works, but do we understand every facet of it, of disease, of healing? Let me ask you this. Do you need to understand every facet of how the human body works in order to enjoy good health, in order to eat food and make use of it? Of course not. We can make use of what we don't fully understand. And we can enjoy the new birth without understanding exactly how it happens because it is ultimately a mystery. Man has done wonderful and great things, but those things are all in the domain of the flesh, not in the spirit. That's the point. You must be born again, he says. Don't miss this. He's not saying, Nicodemus, you should. You should really be born again. Or, Nicodemus, you really ought to consider being born again. No, no. He says, you must be born again. Why? If you ask somebody if, they're, uh, if they'd consider themselves to be a good person, what do they usually say? Pretty good, right? I'm not the best. I've done a lot of wrong things. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've sinned. But I'm not as bad as some other people, right? I'm pretty good. May I say to you, friends, that that is irrelevant? Why? Because you have been condemned already. Jesus is going to say that later in this passage. He says, he who does not believe in verse 18 of John 3 is, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You were condemned when you arrived on this planet. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Even from your mother's womb, you were a sinner because you've inherited sin from your father, Adam. In Psalm chapter 7, the psalmist says, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. Friends, do you realize that apart from Christ, the bag is over your head and your, your, your neck is on the guillotine. His, 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 his sword is sharpened. His bow is stretched with an arrow pointing right at your head. And all he has to do is let go of that arrow and you are finished. All mankind is in a perilous condition. And that perilous condition will result in you being cast into outer darkness. Eternal conscious torment forever. It's what the scriptures call hell. It's the lake of fire. It's the worm that never dies. You must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind is sovereign. It is independent. It is autonomous. And so is God in the salvation of sinners. The song we sang this morning, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, 
revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. I don't know how the Spirit moves. The Spirit blows like the wind wherever he wills. He passes over some, he lands on others. This is our third principle. The new birth is a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit, a sovereign act of God. In verse 5, we saw the Holy Spirit is involved in the new birth. He's the water who washes us. Here we see the Holy Spirit is involved as wind. Wind. The Hebrew word for wind is spirit. And we see this in the Old Testament. First, in the the very beginning, in the creation account, Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, the wind of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. And what is he doing? He brings chaos. He brings excuse me, order and form out of the chaos. He creates. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, the wind of God in in, in, in a man to give life. And then we see that same wind come at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as a mighty rushing wind, when Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit upon all flesh in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, this same wind of God is what must blow over you to be born again. James in chapter 1, verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth, literally gave birth to us, birthed us from the womb by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, salvation is sovereign. And friends, if if anyone ever tells you that there are steps to being born again, a formula, something that you need to do, a prayer that you need to pray to be born again, just say these words and you'll be born again. It's not true. The wind is sovereign. The wind blows. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We cannot control the wind just as we can't control God and his sovereign salvation. Nicodemus answered and said to him, verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus, if what you're telling me is true, I'm no better off than a pagan who has no religion at all. That's right, Nicodemus. That's right. Jesus is shattering Nicodemus' confidence in the flesh. He is blowing up his whole life. Checkmate, Nicodemus. And that's what he must do with each of us. Christianity, friends, is not just Listen to this. It is not just adding principles, teaching, ideas to help us live a better life. It is the life of God implanted in our souls from above. It is a radical transformation from death to life. There is no greater change that can happen in a man's life. Have you experienced that? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? This is a stern rebuke for Nicodemus and the other false teachers in Israel who misled others, right? Just read Matthew chapter 23 and all the woes that Jesus pronounces on these Pharisees. He calls them blind guides over and over again. You are the blind leading the blind. He calls them whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but inside, inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. You're making proselytes, converts, literally twofold children of hell twice the children of hell because you are luring them into your false and damning religion of works. Most assuredly, 
Verse 11, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Again, pay attention. Amen, amen. I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Is Jesus uh, just speaking in a stylistic way when he uses the pronoun we? There are some commentators who believe that he is. He's, he's just speaking stylistically. He's, he's speaking really in the first person singular. I say to you these things, but he's just using the word we sort of in a style. I don't actually think that that's the case here. Why? Well, what do we know? Jesus is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He's the Son. And in John 14, 10, talking with Philip, he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. So we know that the Father is with the Son when he speaks. And then you'll remember when Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, in Luke chapter 4, he goes into the synagogue. This is right after he'd been baptized. The Spirit of God descends on him in the form of a dove. And he goes into the synagogue, and he picks up the scroll to read. And what does he read? Isaiah 61, our call to worship this morning, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me, right, to preach the gospel to the poor He has anointed me. So the Spirit of God is upon Jesus as well. So who's speaking when he says, Nicodemus, we know, excuse me, we speak what we know. It's the triune God speaking to Nicodemus. Father, Son, and Spirit. We speak what we know. Unlike all other prophets who have come before Jesus, who receive revelation from God, Jesus speaks from firsthand knowledge, direct experience. We speak what we know. Why? He's seen it. He's the source. He's seen all things. He sees the beginning from the end. We speak what we know, Nicodemus, and you do not receive our witness. Nicodemus, you, not just you, but you and Israel, because this links back to verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We, Israel, know. Jesus in verse 11, the you there, you do not receive our witness. That you is plural. You Israel, do not receive our witness. Isn't that how the Gospel of John begins? He came to his own. He came to his own, his own domain, the domain of humanity. And his own, that second his own in verse 11, narrows down his own, his own people. His own people did not know him. They rejected him. Why? Because they weren't born from above. They were not born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is still unbelieving. What an incredible thing this is that the triune God can speak to a man, can speak to a man, and that man can reject what he hears from God. That tells you how strong sin is in the heart of a man, how blinding it is in the heart of a man, that he wouldn't even recognize the true word of God when God himself is speaking to you. Right? You think about Judas. Judas saw all the miracles. He was with Jesus during the course of his whole ministry. Did he believe? You must be born... Again, I'm putting the evidence before you. John is putting the evidence before you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you should believe. Do you believe? If you do, you have life in his name. Verse 12, I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly heavenly things? Let's just take a step back here. What is really going on here? This is the eternal word of God. From John chapter 1, verse 14, who takes on flesh, literally tabernacled and dwelt among us. He 
tabernacled. He wrapped himself in flesh. The eternal God covers his glory. Why? Well, for a few reasons, but one of which is so that he wouldn't destroy man by dwelling with him. You remember the, the, you remember the principle. No man can see God and live. Jesus had to wrap himself in flesh to become like one of us in order to dwell with us. And what does he do? This is the condescension of Christ. He is come down. He is speaking to Nicodemus in a language that he would understand. Aramaic, Hebrew. He speaks so Nicodemus can understand. He uses earthly illustrations, water, wind, spirit, concepts that Nicodemus can relate to. He could have come speaking the tongue, the tongues of angels. He could have come in a, in a form that Nicodemus wouldn't have understood anything about, but he didn't. He's working with Nicodemus, and he works with us. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus, you don't even believe when I tell you of earthly things. What if I were to start talking about the, the intricacies of the Trinity or, or the, 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 the character of God, the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God? How could you stand to have that kind of a conversation? Verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Friends, there is no ladder that we can climb to heaven. There is no amount of good works that you can do to tilt the scales of justice in your favor. Remember, you're condemned already. You're in the domain of the flesh. You can't get to the spiritual on your own. Moses ascended the mountain, did he not? But he didn't ascend into heaven. The Lord came down and descended upon the mountain to meet with him. I love the song we sang, sang this morning. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Heaven must come down to you. And he says... No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. There's another bell, Nicodemus, Son of Man. Son of Man, you mean the, the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7? The Son of Man that Israel would have understood to be the Messiah? Yes. He's identifying himself as that Messiah who is in heaven. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He came down from heaven? Nicodemus, I'm talking to you on earth, and I am in heaven at the same time. Can you understand that? Here's one of those heavenly things the omnipresence of God. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, verse 14, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. The Lord mentions this very interesting account from Numbers chapter 21 of Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness, and he draws a direct comparison with himself. And you'll remember the story, right? Israel had been complaining to God, and God, his wrath is aroused, and he sends fiery serpents to them, and they bite the people, and many die. And the people say, Moses, Moses, we have sinned. Ask the Lord that he would take away these fiery serpents. And what does the Lord say? He says, Moses, make a bronze, a brazen serpent, a fiery serpent. Lift it upon a pole in the camp of Israel so that anyone who looks upon it would be healed, would be saved. And it came to pass that all those who looked were saved. Friends, it's those of us who know we are bitten with the venom of sin coursing through our veins, that we're going to die as a result of that venom, who look. And what are we looking at? We're looking to the serpent on the pole. You say, well, how is Jesus a serpent? For he, God, made him, Christ, 
who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's it. This son of God was made to be sin. He himself knew no sin. He became sin for us. God put the sins of everyone who would ever trust in Christ on the shoulders of Christ, and he crushed him, as you read in Isaiah. He crushed him for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions that by his stripes we would be healed. Jesus was the only person in history qualified to be a sin bearer for someone else, a substitute. Why? Because he didn't have any sin of his own to bear. He was sinless, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He didn't have an earthly father. He always obeyed his heavenly father in everything. He came to fulfill all righteousness, and he did. He never once sinned. He was made in the flesh as us, as a human being, in the likeness of sinful flesh. But he was not a sinner himself. He condemned sin in the flesh by his crucifixion. He is that serpent, the one upon whom our sins have been laid, that we must look to to be saved. Do you realize that this is a picture of Christ, our Savior, who took our sin upon himself and was crushed for our iniquities, for your iniquities? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is our fourth principle and and last principle. The new birth enables us to believe. This, my friends, is the first and great evidence of the new birth. Believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you've been born again, born from above, you will look to this one who was lifted up on a cross and you will believe in him and you will not perish. That is God's promise to you. You will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. The new birth enables us to believe. The wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it. There's a sound, right? To the wind, you don't know which direction it's coming from, which direction it's going, but you do know when it's been there. There's a sound to it. There is an evidence in the life of a man that he has been born again. And this is it. This is the first and great evidence. He comes to Christ and believes. It's very simple. Do you want Christ? Do you believe in Christ? Then you know you've been born again. It's not just the intelligent, not the wealthy, not the wise, not the privileged, not those who are born of a particular birth or pedigree. Whoever believes in him. He's the savior of all men in that sense. Not every man who is on the planet or whoever was on the planet, but all types of men. No tribe, tongue, language is excluded from the kingdom of God. All you need is to know that you are sick and poisoned by sin and look to Christ in faith and be healed. So these are the dual truths that were taught in scripture. The sovereignty of God on one hand, the wind blows where it wills, and the responsibility of man on the other hand. You must believe. Look to him and believe. That's your responsibility. And if you do, then you know he's drawing you. If I be lifted up from the earth, Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself. He is drawing men. Do you feel him drawing you this morning? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And finally, we come to perhaps the most memorized and quoted verse in Scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
My friends, the love of God is so otherworldly, we cannot fully understand it. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He dies for his enemies, for those who hate him, for those who rebel against him. He sets his love, which originates only in himself. It's not that we have anything lovely about ourselves. Is there anything lovely about a, uh, a person who is sick from head to toe with open putrefying sores? Nothing. Nothing lovely about that. But God's love is God's love. And the extent of his love is measured by the value of his gift. God so loved the world that he gave. And what did he give? His precious only son. There is some confusion on this, uh, or has been confusion on only begotten son. It kind of sounds like Jesus uh, was begotten. He was born at some period in time, in eternity past, if you will. He wasn't. This, this just simply means unique. Only begotten, unique. He is the unique son of God. There is no one else like him. He stands apart from every other religious figure in this world because he alone has the power to save and he alone is God. I want you to notice John 3, verses 1 through 15 all precede John three sixteen. That background is intentional. The new birth is a sovereign act of God, and it brings us to faith in Christ such that we will believe. J.C. Ryle, the uh, Anglican theologian, he said, A man may be ignorant of many things in religion and be saved, but to be ignorant of the matters that are handled in this chapter, referring to John 3, is to be on the high road that leads to destruction. So in closing, I ask you again, have you been born again? Have you been born from above? Do you believe that Christ died as a substitute for your particular sins? That he was punished for your sins and died the death you deserve to die? Do you embrace Jesus as the Christ, your Lord and Savior? Have you taken up your cross to follow him and obey him because you love him? Is Jesus only a man to you or do you believe he is the eternal Son of God incarnate? Do you rejoice in your spirit when you hear these truths? And do you desire to hear more and to know more of this Jesus? Has it moved your heart? Is there a sense of gratitude, of thanksgiving within you? If so, then I say on the, on the authority of Scripture, you were born again. And if you are born again, then you are a new creation in Christ with a new nature, new desires. Desires for, for holiness, a desire to please God. Hatred of sin, hatred of that which you previously loved and took pleasure in and approved in others who were sinning as well. This should be the biggest change in your life. Why? Because you've passed from death to life. If there is no dramatic change in your life, then you still have a bad root, my friend. And this is just nothing more than a religious experience. If you say you've been changed, but you live ungodly, you practice sin as a pattern in your life, you love sin, then you haven't been born again. Perhaps you've been bored by what you heard today. Perhaps it sounds like foolishness and rubbish to you. But the good news today is today is the day of salvation. If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But you say, I'm too far gone 
I've, I've done, you don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know the extent of how much I have sinned. My friend, did you hear in our hymn this morning, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Listen, the gospel is wide enough to include the vilest offender, the most heinous sinner who truly believes, but it is narrow enough to exclude the most self-righteous, religious, morally upright person who does not believe. For the gospel, we have it stenciled on our wall. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Friends, we must recognize in a sense all of this is beyond us. Put away your endless questions. Trying to pit your finite mind against the mind of the infinite and repent. Turn from your sin and your old life, your old ways of thinking, and come to Christ. Bow before him. Ask him to change you from the inside, to wash you, to forgive your sins and grant you eternal life, even though you don't understand it all. Trust him as a child trusts a loving father. This is a good prayer, my friends. It's not a formula, but it's a good prayer. It is God's will, we know, that men, women, and children be saved, be born again, that they would embrace the Son of the Father's love. He says, this is my beloved Son. Hear him. For you who are born again, brothers and sisters, beloved of God, praise the Lord for this new gift of life that he has given you. Praise the Lord that the wind of God has not passed you by, but has blown over your life and has changed you from within. Go forth and share this good news, this gospel with everyone else, that there is forgiveness of sins in Christ alone and eternal life awaiting all those who trust him. By the way, if you're wondering what happened to Nicodemus, our friend Nicodemus, here in this passage, it's clear that he did not receive the witness of Christ. He did not believe. But I believe there is sufficient evidence to show strong evidence that he did become born again. You can read that in John chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths. Nicodemus himself stands up against the other Pharisees and he defends, he comes to the aid of Jesus Christ. He says, does our law condemn a man before it hears what he does? He stands up for Christ. And then he shows up again in John chapter 19 with Joseph of Arimathea as Jesus is being buried and Nicodemus is the one who brings the spices, a very large, costly sum of spices to bury his Lord. Let's close with prayer. Father, blessed are you, and blessed is everyone who has ears to hear, whom you have given ears to hear from heaven. Your Holy Spirit coming and taking up residence inside of us, changing us from within, washing us of our filth, and creating a clean heart in us. Oh God, who can do this but you alone? Mankind is so lost in darkness, in sin, and he loves his sin. He loves being lost. But you are a great Savior. You are the shepherd of the sheep who seeks out his sheep. You are the one who seeks us. There is none who seeks you naturally, Lord. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Thank you 
that you are a great Savior and that salvation is of the Lord. What can we do, Lord, but bow our knee before you, before the Son of your love, as we proclaim him Lord and Savior of our lives. May all blessing and honor and praise be to your great name, for we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.